Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 45, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hey, welcome back to our series in November. It's just a a three-part series in November, because during the week of Thanksgiving, we are not going to post a new podcast, but this month we'll do three podcasts on the Kingdom of God. And if you're just joining us, our first episode that was posted last week was really setting up the foundations for what is the Kingdom of God anyway. It's one of those phrases that we, we hear it all the time, and Jesus, as we said last week, talked about it almost constantly, and you'd think we'd have a better idea of what the heck the Kingdom of God really is, but most of us listening to this today have not grown up in a kingdom. We have not served a king, and most countries today don't live under a formal royal structure. Most countries are either totalitarian in some way, communist, or some form of democracy, and even their royal structure that exists is just for show, for the most part. So most most countries don't have an operating kingdom ruled by a king. So we don't have any real kind of hands-on experience of what it looks like to live in a kingdom, and that's what we explored last week. What really is life in a kingdom? And we explored the kingdom culture that the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have created and want to advance in, on earth in, in our lives. And so we, we talked about how uh, we're, when Jesus said to Nicodemus that we're, we must be born again, he's really saying you must be born again into a new kingdom that has new values and, and priorities and, and patterns of behavior, and you're going to have to learn how to live in this new kingdom. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to help us understand what life is like in the kingdom and how to live in it straddling two kingdoms, the one we live on earth and the kingdom of God he came to bring. So that was sort of the foundation for for all of this conversation. And um, one of the things we said that we want to explore uh, this week is the role of trust in the kingdom of God. It's crucial. It's the foundation for everything. And the reason why that's true is, if you think about it, uh, democracy is really the best system of government for a fallen world, where people are broken and we don't really want power, all power concentrated in one person, like a king would have. Because of the brokenness of sin in our lives, that has proved to be a disastrous uh, sort of system. Um, concentrating a lot of power in one person um, has always led to trauma and tragedy in the world. And so democracy sort of works against that by spreading out the levers of power amongst many instead of few. And so in a fallen world, a democracy is sort of the—it's the, uh, you know, not a lesser of evils, but of all of the terrible systems of gov- government, it's the least terrible. <laughs> but we said last week the only reason that you might want to live in a kingdom with a king who has all of the power is when that king is perfect and good. 
So there's really one, only one option for us. It's always better to live in the kingdom of God under the good King Jesus than it is to live in a democracy, because it's always better to live in a kingdom with a perfect and good king than in a democracy. There's many, many benefits to it. So there's only one real option for us as far as living in a kingdom, and that is the kingdom that Jesus is, is, uh, is overseeing. So in order for us to truly live in that kingdom, we have to trust the king who's over it. And we have plenty of reasons not to trust God in our lives. The, there, we have plenty of disappointments in, tra- in our own traumas and doubts and misconceptions that keep us from wholeheartedly trusting the King. And so he's got a lot of work ahead of him if, if he's going to really rebuild the trust. And I believe this is really the mission of Jesus um, on earth, was that he came to rebuild the trust and intimacy that the Trinity once had and, and then was stolen and broken because of sin. So how can we possibly trust when our trust has been broken over and over and over again? Well, it's a miracle. Uh, this is the chief of miracles that Jesus does on the earth, the, the miracle of restoring our trust. And in that process, we have the possibility of an intimate kind of relationship with God that Adam and Eve never had the opportunity for, because uh, before the fall, they had no reason to distrust God. He had never done anything that would make them distrust Him. Um, we have plenty of things that have made us distrust God in our lives, and so the restoration of trust offers us a deeper kind of intimacy than Adam and Eve could ever have experienced. So it's an it's a invitation and a possibility that's exciting. Um, and today, to help us explore this exciting possibility, we have a special guest with us who I've known for many years now. His name is Craig Cable, and he's the director of church publishing here at Group. But he has an entire other life that he lives that where he is uh, an expert that will help us in this uh, pursuit of the restoration of trust. We're going to come at it from a kind of a funny way. Craig is a church security expert. And so, Craig, uh, I'm, I'm going to let you tell a little bit about yourself and how you ended up with such a title as that. Well, uh, Rick, thanks for having me on your podcast. I love this topic. I love that we're entertaining this idea of trust, because in, in our world and what kind of catapulted me into church security was I, I love the local church, I love serving in my local church, and I wanted to try to find ways I could serve in a meaningful way that was unique to my gifts and abilities. Uh, what was it, Liam Neeson, who said, I have special skills. <laughs> so so I'm a little afraid right now, because I think Craig's about to say that he could kill me with his pinky finger if he needed to. No, it's going to take two fingers to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I came from a military background, military training. I have always had an interest in, in all things sporting, but uh, I had received some pretty specialized training. And uh, so my background is, uh, aside from military, I'm an NRA certified firearms instructor. I'm also an NRA range safety officer. I'm certified in verbal de-escalation and tactical communication. I work with church security teams to help prepare and train them. I work very closely with law enforcement and, uh, and members of the SWAT team on how to deploy security measures within a church all the way from verbal communication all the way up to and, and including uh, deadly force. So 
serving on the church security team was a, was a phenomenal way to make a meaningful impact where I was seeing a direct difference I was making on a daily basis. So you've already said a word that is probably one of the most popular words in our culture today, which is security. We hear about security in travel, we hear about security, homeland security, which is a new agency only established in the last decade. We hear about security at home, security at school, security at work, and now security at church. Security, it's an interesting thing because it, it's a word that sort of is laden with all of this promise, that if we, we just had greater security, then we would have a greater sense of peace and trust, because we're secure, we're safe. And, but security seems like one of uh, those promises that you could never fulfill. I mean, what really is security? What, how would you define security yourself? I, I would say in my role in the Church, um, part of that is I don't want anything to stand in the way of people being able to worship and grow in their relationship with Jesus. So having a presence and a, and a responsibility to make sure that we're creating an environment where that can happen. And, and as we serve our community and reach out into the mission of our community, and we attract the whole spectrum of our community— we want our church to be an inviting place, but I also need it to be a place where there's, that it's free of distraction, of, of uh, including up to fear. So uh, when, I'm, when I'm looking at that, it, it encompasses not only security, but also safety. We have medical considerations. We have making sure that a child doesn't get lost. I, I could tell you stories, if, I, if you wanted to be regaled, where a, lot of, a large function of my role at the church really has nothing to do with actually engaging a bad guy, but helping minister to and support wonderful people. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a, a recent story where you had to to actively step into your role as a security, a trained security person at your church. What happened? What, what, was the, what was the story of the person you were engaging, and then what happened in the end? Why don't you give us a, a recent example? Sure. This, this is one that uh, most churches wouldn't think this is a role of security, but it's actually something we had trained for, praise the Lord, was we do a lot of scenario-based training. So I take my team through situations in the environment of our church, and I throw them into the deep end of the pool. And the reason I do that is because I want to find cracks in our procedures, because I would rather deal with an issue in a training scenario than when we're dealing it real-time in the stress of the moment. So one of the scenarios was a lost child in the church. So we have this lost child. What's our plan? And so people were running around. We were looking everywhere. And it was, it was very quick. Within just a matter of a few seconds, we had no plan. So we stopped, regrouped, reset. Then we actually started to work through, okay, well, let's work the problem. What would be our plan? So we, we developed a training protocol and actually now a practice within the church. Three weeks later... We're standing in the lobby, and this frantic children's ministry worker comes running down the stairs, and she said, did you see him come through here? And I'm like, oh, ooh. it's a little boy. He's in a striped shirt. He's severely autistic, and he got away from me. And I said, how far ahead of you? And he, she said, I was a little slow getting down the stairs. So I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Well, we had just practiced this. So the training was... We're going to lock down the doors, but two security people go outside into the parking lot in the event that they had already gotten outside of the building. And just as I came around the corner, I saw a striped shirt attached to a young child's elbow as he's rounding the corner at full steam. So I start running. I chased him down probably 
maybe 150 yards away from the church, towards a major highway, which is our major thoroughfare here in Loveland. And can you imagine how terrifying it is for this 10-year-old autistic boy, for this strange man, to just shy of tackle him? Yeah. So I grab him. We're holding him. We get on the radio. We find his mom. She comes out. We're trying to calm him down. If we hadn't have practiced that, one, we wouldn't have looked outside the building, and two, there's no telling what, what would happen to that child if he'd run into the street. So yeah. that's, that's not a typical yeah. what you would think is security, but yeah. that's the safety of our church. Yeah. Let, let's hear another story uh, that kind of represents the other side of what you do as well. When you, in your church, partly because of your location, partly because it's a large church and mm -hmm. you have services for people that are homeless, for instance, you have people come into your church that sometimes are mentally unstable and even sometimes are threatening. Uh, so uh, tell me tell me a story of when you had to intervene with a person who was threatening in the church. Yeah, th this was fairly recent, just in the last couple of weeks. Uh, oftentimes, it's one thing to have homeless that are, you know, where it's a lifestyle, and that's another that there's oftentimes mental Ill illness or substance abuse. In this particular issue, this was substance abuse. You could tell he was... Um, he kept standing up, getting down, moving around. He was very agitated. He was sweating profusely. Well, he kept leaving a large backpack in the sanctuary with families around him. I don't know what's in the backpack. That's a bad uh, deal. So we tried to get him to get his backpack. Well, he ends up leaving the building with the backpack sitting in this room. Is it a bomb? Uh, what, what, what's going on? So I proceed to engage him outside of the building make contact with him, he gets fully agitated. He's now yelling at me, he's cussing at me, he's coming at me, and he's very upset because he feels that I represent, you know, a, uh, a, you know, an authority figure, and he definitely has an issue with that, and so he's upset, We're, and I'm trying to calm him down, and he uh, <laughs> gets into the church, and so I'm trying to, I'm trying to kind of keep the peace, but the, the point uh, that I need to maintain is that um, we still have to minister to this person. Uh, he, yeah, he's, he's an odd element here in the church, but we don't want to lose sight of what can we do for this person. And luckily, we were, and just through the grace of God, we were able to get him to settle down. We were able to uh, kind of de-escalate the situation. We were able to get into some counseling ministries. We were able to on-ramp him into other services. And I tell you, three or four days later, I met him again, and he had a totally different countenance. It's amazing what you look like when you're on drugs and when you're off drugs. And, and he had come down, and it took about three or four days, we think. I'm assuming it was methamphetamines that he was on. Hmm. Um, much more reasonable, uh, much more lucid. And, uh, and so you have to understand when you're engaging an individual like that, they're not in their right mind. And, uh, and you're, you're having to deal with that real time yeah. in a church. And I, I think uh, uh, what comes through as you describe what you do, and I, I know this is true of how you think about what you do, but it comes through as you talk about how you engage these people, that this is a, not simply security for the church, but it's a ministry of security right. that you're trying to establish, which is a different deal. Mini a ministry of security has, I guess you might, we would say it has to have a a theology behind it if it's a ministry. If it's simply security for a church, then it it could be the same no matter if it's a business or a school or anything. But this is different in what you're trying to establish in the church. And what's interesting is that you're you're very highly trained and your team is is well trained. And that's not true of every church. Right. We've been reminded of that 
you know, in the last couple of weeks when this horrific trauma happened in Sutherland Springs, Texas, when 26 people were killed and 20 are still in the hospital as we record this today, uh, uh, from a man who, who had an automatic weapon, who uh, there was no impediment for him entering the church, right. and there was no one in the church who could stop him either. He was, he, uh, we don't even know why he stopped. I think he stopped because he thought he had killed everyone in the church. I, I don't. I don't believe there was anyone in that church who was not wounded or killed, which is incredible. So he was only stopped when he got came back out of the church, and a neighbor engaged him, and right. eventually he took his own life. And that happened a mere two or three weeks after this mass killing in Las in Las Vegas at a country music concert. So we, these things are in our face all the time, and the word security hovers around these stories. And now we know in our culture, because of what happened at this church, that this is very much on the radar of churches. In my own church, when I walk into church every Sunday, there's a police car parked up on the sidewalk next to the door. I never see a uniformed policeman ever, but that police car is parked there. And when I go into the church, I always ask myself, what message does this convey? What message is it supposed to convey to me? And, and do I agree with the message? That I ask myself that, and I, I don't know that I've arrived at a really clear answer, but I know one of the points of having that police car parked there is to say, hey, this is a secure environment. Hey, people, if you have kids here, we have, we're pretty upfront about this is a secure environment. We have police on the, on the location here who are helping us with our security. So it's, made to, it's, it's meant to make a statement, and so one of the things that I wonder about is this tension between safety and trust, and what, how far do you go in a church setting to establish a secure environment? And, uh, you know, people that have listened to this podcast often um, know that I've, I've talked about how in this culture that elevates safety above almost anything. That, that's why we say be safe instead of have a good day now. It elevates safety above almost everything, that that has some unintended consequences for how we live our life with Jesus. Uh, it, it would be hard, you'd be hard-pressed to say that Jesus lived by the motto, be safe, and you'd be hard-pressed to say anybody who's ever really changed the world for the better um, live their lives by the motto, be safe, and yet parents say this to their kids habitually, and I, adults say it to me all the time. I mean, waitresses say it to me when I'm leaving a restaurant, you know, I had somebody yesterday when I was uh, I was going to head up here to Loveland, and it, it had snowed a little bit before, and the last thing she said to me was, oh, be safe out there, and uh, it's such a ubiquitous message in our culture about safety and security we're, we're focused on it, and now we have to be focused on it at church. And, and uh, we were in a conversation earlier today with some, some leaders in our organization, and one of them said, you know, I don't want to have more training in security consciousness. I, I don't want to be vigilant. I don't want to be on edge, looking all the time for threats in my church environment. I, I, I don't want that to be a part of my experience at church. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit, Craig, about this tension between security and trust, and how much do we expect to—how much should we expect to look out for our security, 
what is reasonable, and where does that maybe cross the line in, in your own mind? Yeah. Well, I can relate to everything she said this morning at, at breakfast was, I can tell you, vigilance is exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, Explain <laughs> what you mean by that. Well, uh when when I'm when I'm on duty, or, or even even now when I'm off duty, when I'm just this, now that I'm aware and trained, it's never off. I when I walk into a movie theater, you know, tra- Colorado had the tragedy of the uh, the uh, theater shooting, mass shooting. I can't I can't relax in a movie theater. I can't relax right out. So this hyper vigilance is just now kind of a fabric now of who I am, and I I can't turn it off. And what actually happens is when I'm on duty whether or not I'm doing private security or church security, you have to key yourself up to be hypervigilant. And because I, I'm bearing a responsibility, I can't have something happen to anyone while it's on my watch. And it affords, just like the person this morning said, I don't want to have to do that. Well, you don't have to, uh, because I'm, I'm bearing that burden for you. Because I, I know it's hard, and, and it's a horrible burden to bear. I even know police officers that I train with that don't carry off duty. And I said, really, of all people? And they said, I carry that burden all day long. I don't want to do that on my off hours. And I, I kind of get that. Mm-hmm. I kind of get that. So I, I love that we can afford, we can be the watchman on the wall so people can sit in the palace and in, in our sanctuaries and worship and, and mindfully worship where they don't have to worry about that. And that's okay. Yeah, and the, and all of this is really uh, in in a microcosm, an expression of what it means to live in a broken world, mm. where what what is trust really? Who do we trust? We have all of these uh, sexual misconduct, sexual misconduct, and sexual assault charges it, every day. It's a new high profile person. Today, I heard it was uh, Louis C.K. Mm. Now, the the comedian who has his own uh, very popular comedy show. Now he's being accused of sexual harassment. And so every day it's a new person. And so it creates this sort of underlying sense in our culture that who can you really trust? We can't trust even being in church now, that church is a safe place. And there's a part of us that wants to say, but yeah, we can't turn churches into fortresses. We can't, you know, we can't all become Craig who has a switch turned on and is always aware of threats around us. We don't want to be people that are sitting in church thinking about the threats that might be around us. Hey, who left that bag there? Or that guy, I don't see it, think I've seen that guy here before. Who's he? And why does he keep walking, getting up out of his seat and leaving and coming back? And so we start to think about these things, like, yeah. could that be a, a threatening person? Could that be a dangerous person? So our safety is accessed, and our, our fears are accessed, our anxieties are accessed, and here's Jesus trying to create a deeply trusting relationship with us, and that is arrayed against all of these, all of these fears. What do you think, when we, when we think about what the limits of trust are, uh, when you're th- thinking about uh, the filters that you have to use as a church security person, how far does your trust go? What is your relationship with trust with the people that are coming into your church uh, uh, because of your unusual situation? Yeah. 
You know, I was reminded as you were describing that, and this is going to tie in, was I, I, took a, I took a training course, a very immersive training course, where we basically beat each other, each other up for eight hours. And I was training with some people who were special forces trained. And they were likening to their training when they would raid a home in Fallujah. Yet they were also on church security, and they were talking about how tactically disadvantaging it was to be in church security. Because in, when, they were, when they were knocking down a door in Fallujah, everyone's a bad guy, and everyone gets treated accordingly as a bad guy. And they were just saying, wow, this incredible tension of church. Everyone's a good guy, and everyone's a bad guy. And, and, I, and I'm at a tactical disadvantage because I have to be able to determine that on the spot. And so this is going to loop into the trust is that I trust— and, and I put my trust in uh, that the Holy Spirit is at work in this room. Yeah, I, I, I have specialized training, but I don't engage, I don't walk in the door without first praying about and, and, and trusting that God is at work today and let me be his vessel as, as I minister to people and I serve people and I welcome people into our church. But in any given situation that I've stepped into, the first, the last thing that is on my mind right before I open my mouth is, God, please give me the words to say. I, I'm trusting that you're going to help me navigate this conversation, and I'm trusting that you're going to use me as your tool. God, also, I, I'm trusting that you're stirring in the person's heart that I'm about to talk to, and I'm praying that they, whatever I say that is spirit-led resonates with their spirit. And I can tell you, the things that come out of my mouth are not my words. <laughs> you know, I just, I just am, I continue to be just so blessed and amazed on how God ministers through me and my team in situations that I would say training, there's no way training could prepare you for. So let's use the example, I'm going to use the example of the, the child and the homeless person. Very similar situation, actually. The ministry is to the single mom who's completely overwhelmed with three kids, of when one of which is severely autistic. It would be very easy for her to say, that's it, we're not going to church anymore. It's just, it's too too much for me to do, so I'm just going to go home. The important thing is that she knows she can come back, and we're going to care for her child so she can, she can worship and, and be refreshed and recharged. The other person was, yeah, you could walk in with a militaristic or law enforcement view. They're, not, they're going to be indifferent to this homeless guy. I actually care that he's going to get the help, and he's going to, he's going to rehabilitate from substance abuse. So I'm trusting that God has a plan for his life, and I'm trusting that some way I'm in that journey. And so I'm trusting that God is going to not only allow me to speak into it, but that I'm going to make a meaningful impact in this interaction. And so I love that. And I love that God shows up every Sunday. Um, my wife always asks me, how was it? Oh, it was wonderfully calm today. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happened. That yeah. was awesome. Yeah. And it, what's fascinating about this is this mix of your tactical training, your awareness of what's going on, and embedded within that, the, the, and maybe the central thing in that is that though you have all of this going for you, you still are, are dependent on a trusting relationship with Jesus in the moment to know what to do in the moment. I, you said to me earlier today, uh, I thought it was fascinating, because I'm, I'm sure this happens all the time when people ask you, hey, if I'm in this situation, what do I do? And you said to me earlier today, there is no answer for that, right. as far as a, a cookie-cutter answer for that, and that's why we're dependent on the Spirit in the midst of these situations to know what to, what to do. And I, I mentioned to you that uh, 
there, there's a chapter in my book, The Jesus-Centered Life, called Needing Him to Know Him, which is all about being dependent upon Jesus so that we know His heart more deeply, because if you're truly dependent on someone, like in your case, what, what comes out of your mouth could either lead to healing and reconciliation and even redemption, or it could lead to an escalated, violent situation. So, wow, there's a lot on the line there. Yeah, yeah and not only am, am I trusting my life to this other individual in a lot of ways, because I'm armed. Uh, their life is oftentimes in my hands, too. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a high degree of trust. Yeah, and, and therefore, your dependence on Jesus has some real skin in the game. Yeah. Because there's something on the line there. You you need to know from him what to do next. And the that process of trusting him in the moment is really what unlocks him to us. He he wants us to be in dependent circumstances so that we know him not in a casual way, not in a rhetorical way, but in a real way. That we know his guidance, his his character and his heart towards ourselves and towards others in the midst of it. So one of the things that I was thinking about is we're, we're, we're going to loop back here now to this whole issue of life in the kingdom of God. So if we're going to live in the kingdom of God, trusting a king who and, and giving our whole heart over to that king, which is a really bizarre thing for us to do, even in our most intimate relationships, uh, can we really say that we've given every part of our heart, even in our closest relationships, I asked a friend of mine the other day, I wonder how many times it would take where your spouse betrayed you every day. How many days of betrayal would it take before your trust suffered uh, a blow? I don't think it would take more than five or six days of constant betrayal <laughs> before your trust would be in disintegration mode. Uh, it doesn't take much. Our trust is fragile. So how is it that we can come to this place where we can give our whole heart to Jesus? We have to be convinced of his heart in order to do that. And as we were talking earlier today, Craig, I was thinking about your role and the theology of security and thinking about what would Jesus, what would, what would his attitude be about this? Would Jesus say, be safe to people? Would Jesus want a security team in the temple? What, how, what, what is his attitude toward this? And I, and I thought about uh, John chapter 10, where Jesus goes to great length to talk about himself as a good shepherd and us as sheep. And uh, you, before I go into that, you, you told a story earlier today about shepherd and a sheep. Why don't you uh, tell that again? I thought that was fascinating. Sure. Uh, it, I wish it was my story. I, I'm, I'm kind of monopolizing on the creativity of Colonel David Grossman. He's a West Point uh, professor, army uh, officer, and he wrote a book called On Killing, and, and he's a strong believer. In yeah, I haven't read the book On Killing. Killing. You haven't yeah. read that yet? No, it's, I, a, it's, it's a fascinating It's not even night. in my list of upcoming books. But. <laughs> you, you don't typically fall asleep in the reading of this book. <laughs> so Colonel Grossman uh, had had identified, basically, there's, there's three players in this story. One is the sheep. The sheep uh, are most comfortable in their flock, they're in their group, they're oblivious to their surroundings, they're very com content, they're just wanting to eat and, and enjoy life, which makes them incredibly vulnerable to the predator, the wolf. And the wolf is counting on the sheep's not only uh, lack of attention, but, but a, they're, how naive they are in the dangers that they're in. Then you have this other character called the sheepdog, 
And the sheepdog actually has more characteristics. He's a wolf, uh, essentially, but he has a different wiring. And that wiring, rather than is to prey on the weak, it's to protect the weak. And, and I don't mean to imply that the sheep are weak, the, 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 just the sheep are vulnerable. And so the sheepdog thinks like a wolf, but he has, he has a heart for the sheep. And so they, in, in this role, the, and I find this in my security, what makes me, and I think others in, in, in law enforcement or military or security, any role, is you have to think like the person who would actually do harm. You have to put yourself in their mindset. And then once you're in that mindset, you realize and you can see vulnerabilities, and that's where you stand in the gap because it's, that's where the wolf is going to come across the wall. Hmm. And that's exhausting. But you can't help it. Uh, it's not something you, you train for or turn on or turn off. It's just it's your wiring. And so the sheepdog is, is our security. Yeah, and it, it just reminded me of a huge point that Jesus was trying to make here. Jesus often spoke in metaphor so that we would have a deeper understanding of what he was trying to get at. And in the, in the time that he used the sheep and shepherd metaphor... It was very well understood what he was talking about. The, dis- the description you just gave would have been very common for people to understand the role of a shepherd and what sheep are like. The fact that he, that he used sheep as a metaphor for us is really an embarrassing reality for us, because sheep are the stupidest farm animals there are. And I don't use stupid lightly here, that they're, they're just commonly known as very ill-able to take care of themselves. They have no natural defenses against their predators. Um, If they don't have someone taking care of them, they're going to die. They're not very good about getting themselves out of problem situations. You know, if they stay out all night and and they get rained on and then the rain freezes and gets heavy, they just fall over and die. They they just don't have very many... (laughs) coping mechanisms there. And so Jesus chooses to use sheep to describe us in in this relationship he's describing with a good shepherd. He's trying to heighten how dependent we really are on him, because we as sheep tend to think of ourselves as pretty self self-sufficient. You know, we're independent Americans. We, you know, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We we can do stuff. And Jesus is trying to say, yeah, that's just an illusion. Uh, the the reality is you can do very little, and you need a good shepherd. And when he describes himself in, in John 10, let me just read a little bit of John 10 here, and then we're going to shift gears. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold, rather than going through the gate, must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And after he's gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They'll run from him because they don't know his voice. So those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. Well, that's pretty much par for the course. So he explained it to them. I'll tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely, and they will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And then he later goes on to say, you know, here's the difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. A a bad shepherd runs 
when the wolf comes. A good shepherd stays and lays his life down for the sheep, and he also he describes himself as laying across the opening of the sheep gate himself. That's what a good shepherd does. Uh, they, they literally put their body between the threat and the sheep. And so, in a, in a way, Jesus is saying, I am that person who's always on, who is watching out for the sheep uh, against threats. But our actual experience in life is, well, then why does anything bad ever happen to me then? If we've got this shepherd who's laying down his life for us, why does anything ever bad happen to us in the, in, in the first place? And this is where our issue of trust gets engaged. So can I trust him then? Is he really who he says he is? And I think it then comes down to not studying our circumstantial evidence. Um, one of the things I talk about sometimes is that some of us, and myself included, have gotten accustomed to living circumstantially with Jesus. If things are going well, if he seems to be responding well to us, then our trust grows. If things are going badly, if things aren't turning out the way we hoped they would, and in fact, if, if there's a layer cake of problem and challenge and disappointment and trauma in our life, it really undermines uh, our trust in him, what we think about him. And what it reveals is that our trust is, is really tied to our circumstantial evidence in our life, not so much the heart of the shepherd. So uh, I think the, the route, that the only route we can go is to understand the heart of the one who's saying he's, he's there to fiercely protect his sheep. Just like uh, what's true about you and your role, Craig, and the people that you train in your church, past your tactical skills, past your knowledge, uh, in the end, what brings peace in those situations is people seeing you interact in these threatening situations or in these needy situations and seeing how your heart responds so I think it's profound that people see not only are you protecting, but you're also engaging the people that you're, you've identified as a threat in your, in your church, and they see you engaging that person, that this is, this is where the ministry part comes into it. They get to see your heart, and that's where the trust really comes. You can trust somebody who has tactical skills, but in the end, those skills are subjugated to the heart of the person who's using them. So you have to know the heart of the person who's who's protecting you, and in the same the same is true with Jesus. That in the end, we are reduced to deciding: do we trust his heart or not? In the face of conflicting evidence about our own safety and security, do we trust him, and at what level will we trust him? And I think what this comes down to is the, it's the reason why our small group's name is uh, pursuing the heart of Jesus, not his recipes. Because you can understand the principles of Jesus, the truths that he's trying to bring across, and never trust his heart. That becomes another way of living your life circumstantially. If this uh, principle of truth bears fruit in my life, then I'll trust him. But when it starts not bearing fruit, then I, you know, I don't know. And so it can mask our real need, which is to uh, taste and see that his heart is good. And how do we do that? <laughs> how do we come to trust the heart of Jesus in the face of conflicting information? I, I'm, I'm wondering, when you look at what you do, 
How do you consciously build trust in your congregation? What are some of the things that you think you have done that helps your congregation to trust what you're doing as a as a person who's standing between threats and them? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, every Sunday someone comes up and and thanks one of us, if not myself, one of the one of the team, just their gratitude for seeing us there. I would also say they have they have seen how we jump in. Like for example, uh, we have embedded security members who are part of our youth group, part of our children's ministry, part of our junior high ministry. It's not that we're just standing as you know, kind of these monoliths next to the wall as intimidating factors. We're actively involved in ministry, and so we we're serving our church. And so that's how they oftentimes will see us as an extension of, of ministry. It's not hard because they see us ministering all the time. We just happen to have a very unique perspective. Um, one thing I, I will say, and just in something you said, Rick, that really resonated with me as, as a sheepdog, and, and I speak for the other <laughs> sheepdogs out there, we don't work for the sheep. Mm. I'm not employed or supported. We may be funded, and we may be appreciated by the sheep, but I work for a shepherd. And, uh, and I, when I see that role... The sheepdog has a lot of trust. In fact, they're willing to trust. They're lay down their life because they're they're there to to do the job of the shepherd. And so I I think I think that really personifies that role. Yeah, I, I love that. And that this this idea that that we're we're kind of circling around here about trust as fundamental to living in the kingdom of God. It's a miracle and a mystery how this happens. And if I track back to my own story about how is it that I, I've had plenty of trauma and difficulty and challenge and unmet expectations and things didn't happen the way I wanted them to, and I've mentioned in the podcast my wife has a, a chronic disease that we live with. It's not gone. We've prayed for healing. It's still there. How arrayed against all of this can I simultaneously say, I trust Jesus with all my heart? How is it that we can watch on television people connected to that church in Texas who've lost family members and friends gather and express their trust in Jesus? Is it just a desperate act of hope because they're, if you can't still trust Jesus, then what can you trust? Is it, is it a false way of trying to make ourselves feel at peace or comfortable? My experience of people who have experienced real trauma, real disappointment, real destruction in their lives, who also trust Jesus with their whole heart, is that it's nothing like desperation. It, it's a very considered response to not their circumstances, but the heart they've experienced in Jesus. And it doesn't make, that's why it doesn't make sense to a world that's looking in sometimes how can you still trust Jesus when this has happened to you, or when we live in a world like this? I have a good friend whose name is Ned, who um, a while back I asked him to tell me the story of what changed in his life from living what you might call a normal, conventional Christian life to someone who was captured and ruined by the heart of Jesus. How did that whole progression happen? I had my own story of how that happened, and I was curious about Ned's. So I, I thought I'd, we'd close this off by, by reading Ned's account of how this happened, and I think in Ned's story and in some of what we've talked about here, 
are in, it, it's uh, embedded in Ned's story is is our path forward into trust in Jesus. So here's what Ned said. It started with a crisis of sorts, not a normal one. I'd been a Christian for nearly a decade in ministry for three years when I realized I didn't know jack squat about God. I knew the truth. If Jesus walked into the room that very minute, there was no way I would recognize him. I didn't know the first thing about him. Brennan Manning says that the only way we can know anything for certain about God is by, by what we know about Jesus. So anything that is true about Jesus is true about God, and anything that is untrue is untrue. It makes sense. It might sound elementary to you, but it was life-changing for me. Besides, it was easy enough to try. So I started to get to know Jesus. I chose Mark. It's the shortest gospel, and I began reading real slow. I paid attention to everything the man said, did, and didn't do. And before I knew it, everything had changed. He became real to me. He knocked me head over heels. I wanted to know more, to know, to know him more, deeply and intimately. And slowly, like a ship coming out of the fog, I began to see him and smell him and feel him. I knew what his voice sounded like, and it only made me want more. At the same time, it was like he, was start, like he started rubbing off on me. I started noticing things I'd never noticed before. Leaves changing color, the sound of water hitting the sink. My ears listened differently to people. I began hearing the questions they were asking underneath the questions they were asking. I watched television with new eyes. My judgmental spirit was gone. I cried at odd moments. I found myself liking the sensation I got when I helped other people. It was crazy. And the craziest part is, it was like all of a sudden I had found myself. It was like the more I got to know Jesus, the more he introduced me to the person he created, me, the real me, the one that, if I'm honest, I've always been afraid of. Because what if I don't like the real me? Or what if the real me does something stupid? Or what if the real me isn't really that cool? Or what if the real me gets hurt? But for the first time, with Jesus' encouragement, I was willing to give me a try. And believe it or not, all of this has happened. I have never felt so much pain, been so broken, so weak, so pathetic, and so vulnerable. It's also been the hardest experience of my life. And it has been the best. Because now I know, now I know that I am loved. Jesus loves me. Me. In all my mess, the way I am. Not only that, he likes me. If he had a free afternoon, and he does, countless ones, he would choose to spend it with me, and I would spend it with him. Well, I finished reading this note that Ned sent me, and I thought, this is extraordinary that Ned is describing his journey, and so much of it describes my journey. It, uh, two journeys taken in separate circumstances, completely away from each other, that had some of the same flavor and I, I think what I'd like to close with today is that this simple thing that Ned suggested that he did. He took the shortest gospel, Mark, and he decided to read it slowly. And what he did was he paid ridiculous attention to everything Jesus said and did, the things he didn't say and do, the ways he behaved with people, the way he reacted to people, the priorities that he set, and he just slowed down and paid attention to him. He, he assumed he knew nothing about Jesus, and he came to the Gospel of Mark and said, Jesus, show me yourself. 
and he and he took the time to do that. That was the linchpin for him, and it was for me as well. It started with slowing down and paying better attention to the things Jesus said and did, and truly considering what sort of person would say these things or do these things. What sort of heart does the things that Jesus did? That That's what I want to encourage you, uh, gang, listening to the podcast today. You have about Oh, uh, let's see, about a month and uh, about a little over a month before Christmas. So let's call this our little Advent challenge here to just take the Gospel of Mark and between now and Christmas, slowly read it with this question in mind Jesus, show me yourself. Jesus, show me yourself. Take the time to really understand the things he says and does. And I believe if you do this, this practice, that the heart of Jesus will start to infect you. Um, as you do, and it will start to change you in the same way that it changed Ned. And then when you're in this place, the circumstances of your life may or may not matter to you relative to your trust in him. Can we get to the place where no matter what happens to us, our trust is unshaken in him? Well, Job certainly got there in the end, and I know so many people who, um, they're, they're all the powerful people in my life, who have this same sort of unshakable trust, and it's not circumstantial, and it's not because they are now convinced that they're secure um, in the way that we've talked about it today, Craig. Um, They're secure on a different level. They're secure in their taste of the heart of Jesus, and then everything else is is gravy. So I think what's what's fascinating about this conversation today is this idea that you as a sheepdog would be alert and looking for wolves or threats, and at the same time, there's something deeper going on, a deeper kind of trust that fuels what you're doing. And if, if you don't have that deeper kind of trust, then even your vigilance as a sheepdog is in question. If the sheepdog doesn't ultimately answer to the shepherd, then the sheepdog could go rogue <laughs> in the end. Thanks again for being here today. Is there anything you want to to leave us with today at the end of this? It was just an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate this, and you've given me a lot to think about. And uh, I just, uh, for anyone who's listening to this podcast who uh, has questions about it, because I run into any time I, I share this story, oftentimes questions come up. Um, please reach out to to Rick or uh, through group, or um, is it all right if I give my email address? Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, I can be contacted at ccable, C-C-A-B-L-E, at group.com. And we'll put his, we'll put his, his email address okay. there in the links uh, on, on our podcast page as well. Yeah, we, we're, we're here to serve the Church. We love the local Church, and we know there's some big questions about this area, and I think we are called not to give in to fear, but, uh, but to be faithful, and, uh, and we want to help and resource the Church accordingly. So we have some things coming that uh, are going to help churches not only have this discussion around security, and, and, uh, but, but also how do, how do we minister to people through, this, through the capacity of this role. So exciting things to come, but it was an absolute pleasure being on the show with you. That's great. Thank you for coming, Craig. Hey, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, uh, as we just mentioned, you can find out more information about the things we talked about here today, but in further detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com site. Um, You just need to find our podcast section and look for Season 2, Episode 45. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. And 
Um, next week, the Becky Nader will be back, so uh, we'll have our last focus on the kingdom of God um, next week, and we look forward to uh, being back with you then. Talk to you next time. <laughs>